This is your invitation to a masterclass in engineering and design. Your ticket to go from zero to 60 with the Lexus Performance Line. A feeling this dynamic is invite only. Fortunately, you're invited. Experience the exhilaration of the Lexus Performance Line and some of the best offers of the year on select models at the Invitation to Lexus sales event, now through April 1st. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. It's time for the Rick Smith Show. Now, here is the voice of the working class, Rick Smith. And welcome, brothers, sisters, working class heroes. This is the Rick Smith Show. Thanks so much for being here today on the big program. Lots to get to. Lots to talk about Lamborghini. Yes, the uh, the auto manufacturer Lamborghini, Italian company, announced that they were going to be going to a four-day work week for all production workers. Or, well, I, I guess 70% of the 30,000 uh, auto workers there have said, yeah, they're going to go that route because uh, they're giving people the option. And, and here's the thing. Uh, it's going to save people uh, as much as 22 to 31 days of work a year. Uh, and and it got me thinking that, you know, how much of this was the UAW's doing? How much of this is the fact that the UAW put the 32-hour work week on the table here in the U.S. and that it it got such a weird response, even from working people. Because a lot of the folks I talked to, they were like, well, how could we possibly do that? Because the thinking was, and then I finally drilled down to it, the thinking was we were going to get a 32-hour work week and you were going to lose a day's pay. The argument is make the same amount of money in 40 hours that, that you would then be paid the same in 32 hours so that your standard of living doesn't fall but that you have more home time, more, more quality family time, that you have time to do whatever else you want, harkens back to the eight-hour day fight. Eight hours for work, eight hours for rest, eight hours for what you will. And it's that what you will coming out of the pandemic. I think a lot of working people were like, hey, hey, I'd like some more time to do what I want to do. Uh, spend more quality time with my kids and 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 not be the workaholics of past generations and not sacrifice a standard of living. Because understand, productivity going through the roof. We have created a billionaire class off of off of our labor. We've created you know these big corporations who are wildly, fabulously uh, enriched, massive stock buybacks. And this is one of those things where you're going, hey, look. Uh, it's about time that working people share in this. And I look at Lamborghini as the first auto company to actually go and do this. And we'll see. We'll see how this plays out. Uh, they say that they're going to hiring more, they're going to be hiring more people. And and look, that may be the positive that comes out of this. Because as robotics and as AI and as all this stuff comes online, people need jobs, man. And this this could open some of those up. Now, across Europe, we're seeing a lot of companies that are that are trying it, that are moving in this direction, the four-day work week. And it got me thinking. It got me thinking of, you know, <laughs> shouldn't be this difficult. Uh, we as working people should be demanding better. And, and I started, I was talking with someone the other day about the eight-hour day, which they don't work the eight-hour day anymore. 
Uh, they think that's a thing of the past. We, in fact, I this this very conservative person told me there should be no more work requirement hours. There shouldn't be a forty-hour work week. There should be none of that because we're not doing this is the argument. We're not doing that heavy manual labor. He said that to a guy who does heavy manual labor, <laughs> uh, and. But it's this belief that you know, we're, we're so much better than the past without understanding that without the push, without the push of labor to demand fair treatment, better opportunities, shorter work days, higher pay, we don't get any of those things. And the fact that the UAW put that out there to me is a huge deal. And the reality is, is I think they're doing some really good things on the organizing front and and need to most certainly without question need to be doing an awful lot more and you know when i saw this video that they've come out with and and i like the video i like the video a lot um it's about you know who does the work and i think we need to we need to be thinking in this direction you know who does the work who's the one who well who's the one who makes the profit so i take a take a look at the video here i i like this these hands. These hands. These hands. These hands punch the clock. These hands work the lines. These hands build the cars. And every dollar in profit these companies make is made by these hands. Whether a Toyota, Hyundai, Mercedes, Volkswagen, Rivian. America's auto workers are at a crossroads. When the big three auto companies refuse to share their record profits, auto workers got to organize. For over 40 days and nights, auto workers at Ford, GM, and Stellantis held the line in one big. There's only one question facing America's auto workers now. Who's got next? These hands don't belong to any company. They don't belong to GM. They don't belong to Toyota. They don't belong to Tesla. These hands belong to an auto worker. And these hands will determine what happens next. This is our generation's defining moment. Either we organize and stand up for ourselves. Or we keep falling further behind. Either we fight for a decent standard of living. Or we sit down and shut up. As long as we're divided, we're weak. But united, we can move mountains. It's time for auto workers from all companies to join together. From Illinois. To Alabama. From Mercedes. To Toyota. It's time to stand up. All of us. As united all. That is an excellent, I got to tell you, that is an excellent uh, messaging video. Uh, the reality is, is, and that's not just you know, auto workers. That can be any industry. You know, we should be talking about this kind of, of, we do the work, we make the profits, we create the products. Working people, the hands of working people, the lives, the blood, the sweat, the tears, the sacrifices of families. We should be we should be talking about this more often. And I want to hear your thoughts. Email me, Rick at the RickSmithShow.com. Tell me what you think. Uh, good messaging. Uh, something maybe we need a lot more of. Quick break. When we come back, Eric Loomis is going to be here to share some thoughts on what it took to get the eight-hour day and maybe how we use some of the lessons of the past to move us into the future. Right back after this. I'm Rick Smith, and this is Labor History in Two. On this day in labor history, the year was 1941. That was the day 18 supporters of the Socialist Workers' Party were sentenced in the first Smith Act trial. Earlier that summer, 29 militants had been targeted and arrested for their leadership of the events in Minneapolis during the 1930s. 
They led the 1934 Teamsters strike that made Minneapolis a union town, successfully confronted the fascist silver shirts in 1938, and led a WPA strike the following year. By 1941, federal agents were raiding SWP offices in Minneapolis and St. Paul, seizing boxes of documents, books, pamphlets, and other materials. The prosecution alleged the 29 had conspired to advocate the violent overthrow of the federal government. The defendants insisted that advocating class struggle to achieve a peaceful transition to socialism was not the equivalent of a violent overthrow. They added the trial was a government witch hunt bent on suppressing their First Amendment rights. Six were released, another five were acquitted, but the remaining 18 were sentenced to between 12 and 16 months in jail. Dozens of CIO unions, including the UAW, the USWA, the URW, and the UE, all rallied to the defense of the convicted militants. The ACLU, central in the defense case, now mounted the appeals campaign. They failed to overturn the convictions, and the 18 surrendered to authorities two years later to begin serving their sentences. For historian Donna Haverty-Stack, the case showed how far the Roosevelt administration went to prosecute political dissent, even to the point of targeting the labor liberal left. The act would be repealed in 1952 and hundreds of convictions under the act would finally be reversed as unconstitutional by 1957. Welcome back to The Rick Smith Show. Now, here is Rick Smith. So as we've been talking about, the UAW put it on the table, the idea of a 32-hour work weekend. I gotta tell you, I'm kind of surprised at the number of people who kind of lost their minds over, no, we can't possibly, how greedy are they? And it got me thinking, as I said earlier, it got me thinking about, you know, the eight-hour day. How hard was it? How many people fought, bled, died so that we could take for granted the idea of an eight-hour day? And maybe, maybe, and this is where my thought is, uh, maybe in, in 20, 30, 50 years, that's what they'll think about the 32-hour work week. Uh, we'll, we will see, but here to share some thoughts on what it took to get to that uh, that eight-hour day. I've asked our good friend Eric Loomis to come talk with us. He's a professor and a historian, also the author of A History of America in Ten Strikes, the must-read for every working person in this country. Eric, thanks for taking time for us. Thank you for having me. So let's walk through this because, you know, I give the UAW credit for putting it out there. I, I, I don't believe they ever thought they were going to get a 32-hour work week. But putting it on the table, getting it out there into, into the conversation, uh, a huge first step. And, and as I said earlier, uh, we now see Lamborghini going to a four-day work week. And I see other places, you know, going to be moving in that direction. Um, do, you, do, you, do you agree with me that, you know, it was, a, it was a good first step for the UAW to throw this out? Absolutely. You know, the idea of the eight hour day was not always the, the be all and end all. Right. Why stop at an eight hour day? It, it's true. That eight hour day was a fight and it took a long, long time. But in, in truth, uh, you know, American workers mostly won that in the 1930s. But there were lots and lots of workers and lots of unions for for really until the 60s that were really thinking that the eight hour day was just temporary. And that we could fight for a six-hour day or a 32-hour week or a 30-hour week or some some number of, of hours that would continue to decline as automation grew, as profits rose, as unions got stronger, which they believed was going to happen, 
why not take back more time for the American worker? And uh, and that kind of disappeared. But but you really see that in unions uh, into at the very least the early 60s. No, and look, you know, it's it's for me historically, you know, the fact that the UAW put this out, and and this is kind of the first time as a as as a country we're we're having a little bit a little bit of a conversation, considering that the eight hour day was kind of, you know, the first big company to take it on was Ford in 1914. Um, you know, and now look, you know, this fight had been going on since the 1860s and 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 up to that point, and as you said, not till the 30s. Um, but I think it's it's interesting to see that the reaction that you know we just couldn't possibly do that. It just seems it it seems like history repeating itself. Well, I, I think it shows the limited horizons that a lot of people have when they're thinking about the future of work, right? They're they're, they're thinking about. Um, a scenario in which, you know, maybe their parents or grandparents, the ways that they saw them working back in the 50s or the 60s or the 70s, and that's as good as it's ever going to get. Um, and so ideas that move beyond that are seen as utopian or just fantastical or or completely pointless. And there's no reason to think that, right? I mean, there has always been ideas, and, and the UAW was especially prominent uh, particularly left-leaning groups within the UAW to really in the 40s and 50s to push for continued fights for shorter days. It's not as if American work reached this like peak period where everything was great. And if we only could relive the 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 exact conditions of 1955, everything would be great again. Look, American capitalism is tremendously productive. There is no way more productive than it was in the 50s. Why is it that workers should have to labor as many hours as they did 70 years ago to produce massively more profit for the corporations where they're not really receiving any of the benefits of that? Why not think about giving all the automation, all the talk about AI, all the talk about you know self-driving vehicles and all the other things that, cor that, that corporations are trying to put on the working class to wrest more profit from them? Why not say, as part of this, if technology is going to continue to advance, we simply work less? Why not? There's no good reason why not. And yet it's just like beyond the possible imagination of people to consider such alternative options as a 30-year, 32-hour work week. Yeah. Now, you know, I, the reason I wanted to talk to you is because, you know, the history of this is really important. The idea of eight hours for work, eight hours for rest, eight hours for what you will was radical at the time when the average workday was sun up to sundown six days a week, where you basically, in a lot of industries, you basically live to work. Uh, it's all you did. And and that eight hour that eight hour saying hey we should have time for ourselves we should have time to recuperate and yes we'll work too uh, that seemed was radical for the time and and I'm sure corporate America at the time was going no we we just, we can't possibly do that couldn't possibly afford that that's right I mean the the idea of the eight hour day was considered radical utopian impossible destructive of capitalism. All of these sorts of things. Uh, winning that eight-hour day was a, was a gargantuan victory, but as you point out, it's not as if uh, workers went. You know that fight was taking workers from a nine-hour day to an eight-hour day, right? It was taking them from a fourteen-hour day to an eight-hour day. It was taking them from you know working seventy-hour weeks to working forty-hour weeks. It was taking them from getting no overtime to getting time and a half after forty hours. 
all of these things would have been considered utterly ridiculous by the capitalist class, by the newspapers, by the elite commenters in the 1880s when it was really when it really gained its big, uh, you know, its big initial push in the Knights of Labor. Uh, and so, you know, the idea again that uh, that 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 this is as good as it could possibly get, it, it doesn't make sense, yeah. right? We every generation should have the right to rethink its relationship with work. That's happening anyway in a post-pandemic America, uh, and and it's just natural that as part of that rethinking our relationship to work, we might think, why not get forty hours of pay for of uh, current pay for thirty-two hours of work? especially when you look at the the sheer productivity of the American worker, which is quite amazing. No, I mean, there's always, I always, you know, talk about that, that graph that's out there and you've seen it. Everyone's seen it. Uh, Productivity is going up, you know, from, from the end of world war two up until the middle seventies and wages stay right with it. Uh, Sometime in the mid to late seventies, productivity continues up at a 45 degree angle and well, wages deadline. And not only deadline, they, they actually recede a little bit to where, not only do the corporations get to keep all the productivity gains, they get to claw back some of the wage gains of the past. Yeah, no, absolutely. Right. Why shouldn't wages match productivity? Why shouldn't work? Uh, you know, why, why shouldn't the hours of work match the level of productivity that you were creating? Right. And, and these, these questions, I, I think, I think the response to this really is a sign of how much we've lost how much of the radical edge of, of work we've lost, that the ideas, anything, any idea outside of a very traditional collective bargaining framework is seen as just like crazy town. And that doesn't make any sense because for the vast majority of American labor history, people have articulated real solutions to problems that might seem radical at a given moment, but then 30 years later, because of the fight people have had, they become mainstream. And everybody forgets how radical those were at one time. And so to, you know, we in coming up with the idea of, say, a 30 or 32 hour work week, we're not even like reinventing a wheel here. We're not creating or we're not creating something that is like un, un, impossible. We are actually just reaching back into the pre-existing relatively recent past of the labor movement to revive ideas that were already there. And in fact, if even if you go back to the 1970s then we just revived fairly mainstream ideas from organized labor in the 1970s, we would be accused of all kinds of crazy radicalism, like, you know, a government guaranteed job or something of this nature. It's just that we've lost and we don't, we've lost our radical edge and we don't actually believe that we can make positive change and and that uh, serious ideas to rethink our relationship to work are are worth having. And so, uh, and so that's why something that's really not radical a six-hour day or a, or a 32-hour work week, these are not radical options. This is just a shift given, you know, th- that, that helps match the productivity of the American worker. We're not talking about overthrowing capitalism here. No, We're no. talking about simply resetting the conditions of work so that the, 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 the worker makes approximately what they produce. Um, and this, there's nothing radical about this at all. It should be part of the mainstream of, of not only American labor, but of American policymaking. No, I'm right there with you. I mean, I've got some radical ideas of, you know, technology taxes on automation and robotics as they come on to ensure that when workers are displaced, that they get their their wages until they till they retire or till they pass away. Um, that's a start for me to ensure that this this shift, this technological shift, unlike all of the ones of the past, 
aren't paid for with sacrifices by working people and and future generations. This should be one of these moments where uh, the, the the prosperity that's created is actually shared broadly. Yeah, and and those ideas that you say they were also part of the 1970s American labor movement. In fact, I know of cases where that happened. Right? It's just that we have totally lost those conversations. So you know, even the radical ideas. I mean, there, there's a there's a history there that's that's actually the living history within the living history of, of many many people in the American labor movement. It's so let just, me ask you that you we don't have those conversations anymore. Right. Since since you've brought this up as the historian going forward, because you know I've had a lot of people go, well, how are we going to get there? How are we going to accomplish this legislatively? You've got Republicans who I say hate working people. Just look at what they do. How are you going to get you know, them on board? So what is a pathway forward given? the experience of the past how do how do we how do we take what we've learned in the past and move that into the future well i mean it's like anything else you have to actually organize and 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 i and i really feel like a lot there's a lot of talk about organizing but people don't necessarily do it right people want a big statement from the president that that the president's going to support this but that's not how change happens right change happens for workers coming together from below particularly within their unions to make those demands upon their employers to go on strike, to negotiate contracts, to win those demands. I mean, look at Lamborghini, right? Just like you're talking about. It's not as if the Italian, you know, premier or prime minister, or I can't remember the exact title, who was pretty awful for workers anyway, came down from Rome and said, hey, Lamborghini, like, you need to do this. No, that's not what happened, right? It needs, just like it maybe with Ford or with GM or these other companies where it happened before it became federal law, you can negotiate that as a union, right? You have to do the hard work of organizing to make your people, whether it's your union or your other community organizations or whatever it is that you are organized with and the people you know, make this a priority. If the future of American organizing is just demanding that the president give a speech and everything changes, well, nothing's going to actually get done. It no. takes real organizing from below. Union members have that. So just like the UAW at least brought this up, that's how it's going to change. It's going to be through unions. And it comes through demands. It comes from working people demanding better and, and not tolerating uh, lip service. But here's the thing. and I, I got into a little trouble the other day because I had had a guest on and we were talking about the UAW and, and Sean Fain. And I said, look, I, I think he's a, he's a good leader. I, I, just like I think Sean O'Brien's a good leader, but they're not the ones who did this. It was the members. It was all those people in the streets. It's the people on those picket lines in Toledo and in, in Michigan that we walked with who who knew why they were there, knew what they were fighting for, and weren't going to take a, a subpar contract. I, I keep saying, you know, it's not about the person who's, who's given the speech. It's about all the people standing behind them, pushing that pe person in the right direction. Well, I mean, look, right? I mean, uh, the election of Fain was, came from the rank and file. They wanted a different kind of voice leading them. Um, I think Fain himself realizes that, right? And if you, and, and, and I think to your, you know, I, I didn't hear that particular conversation, but to your defense on this, right? I mean, you know, those contracts, as good as they are, they're very, very good contracts. They barely passed, right? There were a lot, a large minority of workers that were all three of the companies that wanted, that thought they could get a better deal and wanted a better deal, right? And they are, I mean, what that demonstrates for one thing is there was plenty more appetite to continue the strike, right? They were not like desperate to settle. They were willing to continue the fight. And I think that is a good sign that they're going to continue to, to, to feel that way, right? As they gear up, you know, okay, now you have a contract for the next several years, but as they gear up for the next battle, which is not that far in the future. Well, I think the next battle... 
I think the next battle, uh, Eric, is is organizing the non-union automakers. Oh, oh, oh. Uh, I think Absolutely. that's the battle. I think I think I hope that the the workers take that militancy that they took on the picket line and put that energy into ensuring that Volkswagen and Toyota and Nissan and Tesla and all of them uh, are organized so that together the whole industry can make that fight for better wages, hours, conditions. Well, there's no question that the future of the UAW is really dependent on finally organizing non-union, the non-union auto plants. That I completely agree with. I guess what I'm saying just is it was only that, you know, the demands that they did not win with this contract, they could build on for the next contract, right? And that anger and feeling that they're still not getting what their fair share is something that could be articulated going forward, right? Right, And continue to make those demands. And yes, hopefully by the time that happens, you're talking about, uh, a significant increase in UAW membership and overall uh, overall density in auto, which again, I mean, that's the future of the UAW. Like UAW cannot rely on a slowly dwindling number of jobs from, from three companies. And I think that UAW members and the leadership understand this. And, you know, we'll see what happens with this upcoming organizing campaign. Yeah. But uh, at the very least, there's reason to be more optimistic than we were with previous uh, attempts at organizing. Without work. question. And the fact that the 32-hour work week, uh, that they put that on the table, uh, will be a big thing in the next contract, I believe. Because, again, uh, robotics and AI, uh, they are they are here and getting getting more more potent and more powerful. But, Eric, I appreciate you taking a little time for us, sharing your expertise and your thoughts. Hope folks will take a look at the book, A History of in America uh, in 10 Strikes, written by Eric Loomis. Eric, appreciate the time, man. Thank you. Hey, thank you very much. Our good friend Eric Loomis. Want to hear your thoughts? Email me, rick at thericksmithshow.com. I'm going to take a quick break right back after this. Stick around and listen to The Rick Smith Show. We're working people. Come to talk. We are AFGE, the American Federation of Government Employees. We represent 700,000 federal and D.C. government workers who are the vital threads of the fabric of American life. We support our nation's military. We take care of our nation's veterans. We protect our nation's borders. We respond to our nation's crises and natural disasters. We provide services to our nation's seniors. The American Federation of Government Employees. We work for America. Welcome back to the Rick Smith Show. Now, here is Rick Smith. So I got to tell you, you know, Eric is spot on right. Nothing, nothing given without demands. And the fact that the UAW has put the 32-hour work week on the table uh, is now just, it's there. It's Now it's for us to grab onto and to move forward. And, and I, I do find it interesting that, you know, I guess we've been trained in this idea that this is the best we're going to get and that we have to continue to work more and more and more to be able to support our, our families. Remember, you know, we there was a point in this country's history where one income, one income supported a family. One income could buy a house, could buy cars, could put kids through college, could do all those things. We had an economy. <laughs> we did. We had an economy where working people could work to live, not live to work, had the ability to support a family, one income. Now we need minimum two. I'm arguing we're at the three, at the three point now. 
We need three incomes, which is why you're seeing child labor laws across this country, you know, losing, going crazy and losing their minds. And this is why I come back to we need sound policy. We need good legislation and we need active, engaged workers to be fighting for better wages, hours, conditions, opportunities, all that stuff. Uh, but I want to hear your thoughts. Email me, Rick at the Rick Smith dot com uh, for our TV audience. Uh, thanks for being here. We'll see you back here next time. For those folks listening on our radio affiliates across the country, uh, we're right back after this. Stick around. Welcome back to the Rick Smith Show. Now, here is Rick Smith. So an interesting new poll out. And and look, I don't I generally don't put an awful lot of, of credence, faith, uh, especially when you're talking politics, but when you're talking about how people are feeling, uh, I put a little bit more, a little bit more uh, I want to listen behind it when it's it's really about how someone's feeling. So I look at this Daily Co's civics survey just out. And they, they ask questions about, you know, how are you feeling about the economy? And look, there's a lot of people doing this stuff. But it's, it's looking into, you know, how do you feel about inflation? How do you feel about your, your job, your housing? How, how, how are things going? You know, to go back to that, you know, that Reagan quip from, you know, 1980, are you better off now than you were four years ago? And if you ask most people, they don't believe they are. Uh, they don't feel like they are. In fact, they've been sold a lot of, it's horrible, the sky is falling, we're on the wrong track, and, and all of that. And what I find interesting is it's, it, it comes down to people are just mad about what prices are. And and this poll walks through some of this because they, they, they start off by asking, you know, what happened to you at the grocery store? You know, have, have prices gone up? Have they remained about the same? Have they gone down? You're not sure. Well, 88% of people said, you know, prices have gone up because they they have. Corporate America has made sure of that. Uh, you had 5% say it remained the same, 5% who actually said they've gone down. And in some places, you know, a few groceries have gone down, but the overall bill for most people has gone up. Uh, they asked the next question, what about your household income? Has that gone up, down, stayed the same? And, you know, 18% said it's gone up. 56% said it's remained the same. And 25% have said it's gone down. Now, for me, out of all of this stuff, <laughs> um, if you're in that 25%, you should, I, I think you know who you should be mad at. And it's certainly not Joe Biden. But, you know, I, I went through this and they, they acted about your, your expectations. You know, what's going to happen to your household income next year? Do you think it'll go up, down, remain the same? Uh, 24% said they think it'll go up. Uh, 51 said they'll remain about the same. 17 said probably go down. And then they started asking about, you know, if inflation does go down, what do you think will happen to prices? And this is where, for me, it gets interesting because it's this this uh, I, I this expectation that you know things are going to go back to normal. Things are going to go back to the way they were, you know, back in you know before the pandemic. Uh, things. Are, it, it it got me thinking about 
you know, I my 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 great grandmother, my my great grandmother was so cute because uh, she would you know she would do that 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 grandma thing. She would go, you know, when I was a little girl, going to a movie was a nickel, you know, that kind of stuff. And, you know, going to a movie today is not a nickel. And, and guess what? Let me let you in a little secret. And I, I'm sure you already know this. It's not going back to a nickel. If it does go back to a nickel, if that happens, we will have lived through pro the, the biggest deflation in the history of civilization. And, and it's interesting when you look at the polling number on this, that people expect prices, 26% of people said they expect prices to go down. Uh, 4% said it'll go up more quickly. Uh, 21% said it'll go up more slowly. Um, one said something else. <laughs> Who knows? Uh, 4% said they're not uh, not sure. Uh, but it's that it's that number that thinks it's going to go down that's gotten me. And then you get into the question of, in a good economy, in what you would consider a good economy, what do you expect? You know, things, you know, the prices of things like gas and groceries and consumer goods to do over time. And in a good economy, the, the people surveyed said 26 percent said the prices would increase slowly over a long term. You know, as the years go on, you know, the prices have to go up a little bit because wages go up a little bit. You know, cost of things go up. Yeah, that's that's the general progression. Twenty one percent said it'll stay about the same. And in a good economy, that's that's possible. Forty four percent believe that it will decrease over time. And I'm going, I, other than technological advances, like you look at computers, you know, when they first came out, they were the newfangled things and they were really freaking expensive. And they've gotten, they've gotten cheaper as we've mass produced. And you've gotten, I can see where maybe you're thinking the you know, prices are going to go down, but generally not. Generally, the cost of living continues to go up as wages go up. And what you want, and this is where the conversation has to come back to wages, what you want is you want to make sure that wages are keeping pace or exceeding the rate of inflation. If your wages are keeping up, then you're, it doesn't matter. You're just exchanging more money for the same goods. If your wages are, are, are advancing, if you're making a little bit more than the cost of inflation, then you're, you're doing a little bit better. But... But, and this is where I go back to those earlier questions, but if you're not expecting to get a raise, if you haven't gotten a raise, if you don't have the bargaining power to say, hey, the cost of living is really expensive, I should, I, I need more, I demand more. If you don't have that ability, then you're really ticked off because this inflation is killing you. And what's interesting to me is it's those people who are, are the ones who are pointing at the easy solution. It's Joe Biden's fault. Without understanding the, the really large picture, which was we went through a pretty catastrophic thing. We went through a pretty big thing. Which brings us to the next question. Uh, which comes closest to your view about the amount that prices have gone up over the last few years? 70% 70, 70 believed uh, it should not have happened in a well-functioning economy. Something went seriously wrong. And you go, yeah, something went seriously wrong. We had a massive pandemic. We shut the economy down. There were problems. Hello, Houston? We've got problems. 18% said it can happen even in a well-functioning economy. It was not a sign of a deeper problem. And, and look, Understand, 
The pandemic was huge. That was the driver, and we knew inflation was coming. All the economists were saying inflation's coming. Now, what they sold people on, and this is what bothers me about talking heads, is they undersell problems. They oversell solutions. This is the part that drives me insane. It's the same thing with Dr. Fauci. Came out and said, hey, you know, two weeks, it's going to be over. Oh, you know, we're, we're going to get the cure. There's all this stuff without saying, look, we don't know 100%. This is what we're hoping happens. Uh, this is the best outcome. We want to do these things in the hope that, yeah, this does it. If everyone is on board, but over overselling solutions while underselling reality. And the economists did that. If you remember, right as inflation was going up, they're like, oh, it's going to be a very short period of time. You know, this is going to be a little spike. It's going to come back down. You know, it... and then you had the, the people who wanted the sky in the fall going, recession's coming because they believed the inflation was going to be so bad that everyone was just going to freak out and no one would buy anything, which then would cause potentially the other side of this, which is deflation which is prices going down and then going down fast which would mean massive layoffs which would mean more debt which would mean you know well potentially what led to the great depression because that was a massive deflationary period employers had a lot of stuff a lot of surplus nobody had any money to buy it and you go back to well you know Joe Biden gave them money and you go, yeah, Joe Biden gave them money so that they could eat, they could keep the lights on, that the economy would keep going so you wouldn't get into one of these really ugly. And look, Trump did it, too, for the same reasons that you got to keep the economy going. You got to keep consumption in the economy. Now, there's this. Well, there's there's all this money out there. People saved chasing too few goods. And for a little bit, that's true, a little bit. The majority of it is corporate America just, seriously, corporate America just robbing us blind. And no messaging out there to say, look, and I know Bob Casey's got a, a couple of reports out talking about greedflation. Well, guess what? I was talking about greedflation when it was going on, going, look, folks, this stuff doesn't just happen. There's a cause, there's a reason, and we know who it is. It's corporate America. We were talking about the mass consolidation of industry after industry after industry and the power that they have to go, hey, you know, we're going to raise prices. And then my favorite part, uh, the, the, the Democracy Collaborative, they were the folks who were actually listening in on all of the earnings calls. So as corporate America is talking to each other, as they're talking to their shareholders and patting themselves on the back going, look how well we did. Look at how much dividends we're going to be able to send back. Look at all the stock buybacks we can do. Look at the CEO pay we can hand out. While they're patting themselves on the back for incredibly high profit margins, no one's going, hey, these high profit margins, that's the inflation that's killing consumers. That's what's coming out of your pocket. But no, no, we, we don't have a media to do that. Can't possibly do it. 
And the thing that bothers me is, and this this poll goes through a bunch of questions. Do you think you're going to buy a home? Uh, do you think it's going to be affordable? These are things that we can solve, but we're not going to. Because while politically, <laughs> while politically we have politicians who are supposed to do things in our best interest, what we have is a Republican Party hell-bent on uh, anything the Democrats do is bad. Anything and everything is bad. Even if they agreed with it, even if it was their idea. You know, I go back to the Affordable Care Act. The personal responsibility part, this is what I love. The Affordable Care Act was a conservative policy before it was a Democratic policy. The idea that everybody had to be in was an extraordinarily conservative idea. Got to have everybody in, skin in the game. And then as soon as the Democrats put it in there, it's like, sky is falling. I can't believe they're making me do this. They hate us. They're coming for our toasters. All kinds of craziness. And for me, you know, I was reading through some of the comments of the reports on on this survey. And, you know, it's all the American people are idiots. The American people don't know anything. The American people are stupid. The American people are angry. And here's the thing, and this is this is the mastery. This is where the this is this is this is the God, God's honest truth. The mastery here is the right has a powerful echo chamber to tell you who to be mad at. And they regurgitate it day in and day out, morning, noon, and night. It's Joe Biden's fault. It's Democrats' fault. So it's poor people who got fourteen hundred dollars. Not the two thousand that Joe Biden said because Trump had already given him six hundred. Uh, no, it's that fourteen hundred dollars. Wasn't the money that Trump gave out? No, no, it's that fourteen hundred that Biden gave out. Somehow that did all of this. Like fourteen hundred dollars to the average person is going to make a a lifetime of difference. But there's nothing on the other side, really. There doesn't seem to be much in the education process. So when I'm reading through this, I'm going, wow, how can we be this wrong? Did no one have to take Econ 101? Did no one learn about inflation and deflation? Did no one learn about, you know, the the rising of wages and, and you know, price stickiness and all, the, all those things that I remember from 100 years ago? Did we forget all of this? And the answer, sadly, is yeah. Because what we've done is we've got a media structure that's it's all about the outrage. And the outrage is Joe Biden's fault. When the reality is Biden had very little to do with it. Yes, he gave out $1,400. Uh, and the majority of people, especially at the bottom end of the economy, did buy food. Yep, that's what happened. But I don't think they bought any more food than they did before the pandemic. I don't think that they were... You know, uh, there was a run on caviar. I just don't think that that was going on. What the reality in this is, and they didn't ask the question, who's responsible for the inflation? Which I would have loved to have heard people's view on, well, who do you think is responsible? 
I would like to think that the majority of people go, yeah, it's, it's the people raising the prices. It's the corporations. I would like to believe that people would go, we'd like to know why they raised the prices. You know, we've been sold on this idea of the invisible hand and the free market and, and competition. And yet, you look at most industries, especially the ones we rely on most for food and for, for gas and for, you know, our energy and for all of the things that, that we kind of use often. Those are run by a handful of, handful. Not run by, by you or me, not run by mom or pop not run by people who care about their neighbors. They're run by people. Let me let you know a little secret if you don't know it. They're run by people who only care about their bottom line. You know, the people who on August 19th, 2019, before the pandemic, uh, on the business roundtable said, you know what, that, that whole shareholder maximizing wealth thing, we've learned. We're, we're, we're going to do better. We're going to do better because we, we now have seen the light. We have seen the light and we care about what was it again? They care about consumers. They care about communities. Yeah, communities. Um, and they care about, oh, yeah, workers. <laughs> Most laughably of all, workers. Uh, yeah, they, they care. They care. And I look at this pandemic and I think, you know, there's, there's part of me, and this is where the cynical. The cynical part of me goes, this is God's cruel joke uh, to show us just how ridiculous that statement was. It's going, really? Really? You, you believe in, you, you now care about your customers and uh, communities and, and workers more than the shareholders? You, 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 you really, you want us to believe that? Well, let's whip a little pandemic on you. See, let's see if you're going to live your values. And what'd they do? Oh, boy, what did they do? They fired everybody. They got as rid of as many workers as possible, even in the face of, of government going, hey, we'll give you money to keep people on the payroll. They robbed the system blind. We're finding out now that, you know, <laughs> uh, boy, did they line their pockets. And they made sure that they were taken care of because the CEO and the executive class, they didn't lose their jobs. They didn't lose their health care. They didn't lose their position, but all their workers did. Sorry, if you're not you're not coming to work making a product, you're not doing the doing the grunt work, well, we can't have you. So for me, this is this is one of those moments. And as I again, as I, I'm reading through this survey, my mind is just going in all of these places of, you know, explain this to me, how it is that <laughs> that we've gotten here. Understand, and let me, to leave this in a certain, in a, in, a, in a simple place. Just because inflation goes down doesn't mean prices are going to go down. It's not going to happen. We have a problem in this country with, with people having bizarre expectations. And this is one of them. What we should be fighting for we should be fighting for higher corporate tax rates to ensure that this stuff doesn't happen. We should be fighting for higher wages for working people to ensure that, hey, you know, when, when this stuff does happen, we get wage increases, and that's why we need unions. I go back to, you know, I say this all the time. My grandfather, I think it was 1975, 
that one year got three raises because his union contract had a had a cost of living adjustment, a cola in it. That if the 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 inflation index went up by a certain percentage, and it hit a certain level, that wages then had to automatically keep up with that. And three of the four quarters, it did. It met that number, and they're like, "Oh, time to raise those wages." Which is why, you know, when my grandparents bought their house in the in the late '60s. Uh, by the end of the 70s, their mortgage payment was a day's pay. And why? Because you had unions saying, you know what? If if the prices of things are going to continue to go up, wages should go up. That's what we should be fighting for. And that, to me, is the simple, the simple response here. But it's so much easier to go, oh, it's Joe Biden's fault. It's all Joe Biden's fault. Because, well, it, it serves a couple of purposes. One, <laughs> makes you mad at Joe Biden. And two, makes you hate government. Two things conservatives just love. Want to hear your thoughts? Email me, rickatherricksmithshow.com. Quick break, right back. Stick around. I'm Rick Smith, and this is Labor History in Two. On this day in labor history, the year was 1941. That was the day 18 supporters of the Socialist Workers' Party were sentenced in the first Smith Act trial. Earlier that summer, 29 militants had been targeted and arrested for their leadership of the events in Minneapolis during the 1930s. They led the 1934 Teamsters strike that made Minneapolis a union town, successfully confronted the fascist Silver Shirts in 1938, and led a WPA strike the following year. By 1941, federal agents were raiding SWP offices in Minneapolis and St. Paul, seizing boxes of documents, books, pamphlets, and other materials. The prosecution alleged the 29 had conspired to advocate the violent overthrow of the federal government. The defendants insisted that advocating class struggle to achieve a peaceful transition to socialism was not the equivalent of a violent overthrow. They added the trial was a government witch hunt bent on suppressing their First Amendment rights. Six were released, another five were acquitted, but the remaining 18 were sentenced to between 12 and 16 months in jail. Dozens of CIO unions, including the UAW, the USWA, the URW, and the UE, all rallied to the defense of the convicted militants. The ACLU, central in the defense case, now mounted the appeals campaign. They failed to overturn the convictions, and the 18 surrendered to authorities two years later to begin serving their sentences. For historian Donna Haverty-Stack, the case showed how far the Roosevelt administration went to prosecute political dissent, even to the point of targeting the labor liberal left. The act would be repealed in 1952 and hundreds of convictions under the act would finally be reversed as unconstitutional by 1957. Welcome back to the Rick Smith Show. Now, here is Rick Smith. So you've got falling birth rates, have you? Uh, the reports are China's got falling birth rates. Uh, they're upside down on their 
uh, on their demographics. You know, young people aren't having as many children. Old people are living too long. China went through that whole one-child policy thing, which has caused them a little bit of problem. So they got a demographic issue here in the U.S. We're going to have a lot of old people. Uh, I think I read something the other day. Uh, within by, by 2030, uh, half of the population will be like, like 60, 65 and older. So we're, we're getting old. We need we need replacements. We need replacements. So what better than, you know, instead of having someone pump out a bunch of kids, um, we should be pumping out robots. Yep, that's what's coming. This year, it's planned that there will be a robot factory in Salem, Oregon. That's right. Robotex says that they're going to have a RoboFab manufacturing facility going to be the first the first mass produced humanoid robots uh digit is his name five nine hundred and forty pounds can do basically anything a human can do at this point uh, i was watching a video of of the of a robot you know boxing and wow <laughs> and here's the thing this is the thing uh they plan on next year pumping out about ten thousand of these two-legged robots uh, they plan on doing that on into the future, and no, uh, orders are growing. Orders are growing. Uh, the Amazon is where they're, uh, the Amazon warehouses is where they're doing their, their testing ground. Because, uh, hey, you know, wh what better thing to do than to put down that union, that union agitation than getting rid of people? Get robots. And look, I, I'm, I'm waiting for it. I know someone's going to email me. See, Rick, this is why I got to stop all that union nonsense. Because they're going to they're gonna replace you. Little secret, before you bother sending the email, before you hit send, here's what I'm going to tell you. They're going to do it anyway. <laughs> they're doing this regardless of if workers demand better wages, hours, conditions. And this is where I come back to, we need politicians to get their heads out of their tuchuses and do something. Because what happens to our economy if you think inflation is bad now? If you think our economy is in struggles now? Wait till nobody has jobs. Wait till no one has money. <laughs> wait till we have chaos. Not not the poor the poor people. Poor people are going to be fine because poor people know how to be poor. Uh, when I was poor, I, I, I got by. There was always a way to figure it out. And now that I'm a little bit better off, I still remember being poor. So I think I might be okay. But people who have never been poor when their job goes away because a two-legged robot came and took it? Um, curious what our politicians are then going to fight over and divide us with. But I look at this and I'm like, this is scary stuff. Because the future, you know, we're told this is, the, this is the future. No, the future is now. The technology is here. And I've been saying for a while to my truck driver buddies, look, they've got the technology to replace truck drivers. They can do it. They just need the legislative okay. And the problem is they keep screwing things up. They keep smashing into people. But once they figure it out, once they work out the bugs or grease enough palms, it's pedal to the metal. And then what will working people do? Look, the wealthy are going to be fine. People who have assets, they're going to be they're going to be fine. Our rich people going to be really fine. People who can afford to buy their own robot to do work for them, they're going to be okay too. And that's going to happen. 
You'll be able to buy your own robot and you'll be able to put them to work. That's going to happen too. But I'll tell you, we had better policy-wise, politician-wise, heads out of keisters. Get to work getting ahead of this. Look, I'm not a Luddite, but I'm not advocating for smashing the machines, but uh, you've got to think about how to control this rollout or this is going to be an awful lot of chaos. Want to hear your thoughts? Email me, Rick, at thericksmithshow.com. Miss any portion of the program? Make sure you grab the podcast. Wherever you get your favorite podcast, you'll find ours. Thanks so much for tuning in. We'll see you back here next time. You've been listening to The Rick Smith Show. Email Rick Rick at rick at thericksmithshow.com. Until next time, this has been The Rick Smith Show, where working people come to talk.